moisture drops off the trees in the garden as the gate is unlocked and slides back. A man walks to his pool and starts to tinker with the pump. In a second, life changes for him and everyone he knows. Nothing will ever be the same as a gunshot echoes through the dark night. This is True Crime South Africa. I'm Nicole Engelbrecht, and you're listening to episode 138, The Murder of Mike Thompson. This episode is sponsored by Watchtower Group. Let's face it, many of the cases I cover on this podcast could have turned out very differently if victims had had immediate security support when they needed it. If you're looking for the ultimate peace of mind when it comes to security, look no further than Watchtower Group, your trusted partner in off-site CCTV monitoring solutions. Transform your home or business security with their state-of-the-art CCTV AI technology. Detect intruders, monitor your property, and gain peace of mind 24-7. Protect what you cherish most effortlessly. Picture this, a state-of-the-art security camera system capturing every angle of your property and alerting a team of highly trained CCTV operators to any potential security threat. Should suspicious activity be monitored at your property, operators immediately dispatch the armed response to deal with the incident. Maximized security, minimized cost. Save big on physical security expenses with Watchtower's smart surveillance solutions. Their team of highly trained security experts is always one step ahead. Contact Watchtower today by visiting their website on wtgroup.co.za to inquire about a surveillance solution to best suit your needs and requirements. That's wtgroup.co.za. Watchtower Group, the leaders in off-site CCTV monitoring solutions. A huge thank you to Watchtower for sponsoring this episode of True Crime South Africa. Since 2019, True Crime South Africa has been telling the stories of the victims of violent crime in South Africa. The podcast is independent. That means no big or even little corporates fund it. And that's just the way I like it. And it's the only independent podcast in South Africa that consistently charts in the top 10. Keeping a podcast like this going is time-consuming. And for the most part, it remains a one-woman process. It's me. I'm the one woman. You? Yes, you. Are the reason this podcast continues to flourish and help bring in tips on missing person and cold cases. If you'd like to help keep the show running, please consider supporting our sponsors, signing up to Patreon or PayPal, follow the show on the socials, as the kids say, and share it with your fellow partners in crime. You can find our social links and learn more about our sponsors at True Crime South Africa forward slash donate. Shout out to this week's Patreon and PayPal superstars. A huge thank you goes out to Natalie Sterling, Timika Wilkinson, Maggie Botma, Mokhadi Maswagani, Sonia Hill, Lily Okalani Khan, Bianca Kun, Kim Cole, and Janice Kay for your support on Patreon. Thank you so much, everyone. Patreon supporters get one additional exclusive episode a month, a shout out on the pod, and other exclusive contents, including Q&As with me as and when it's available. It's a minimum of $1 a month. I think you should do it. Please. And thank you. Keba. This case first came onto my radar in August last year when the victim's sister emailed me. 
Debbie Thompson wanted to discuss the possibility of me reviewing the book she'd written about her brother's case, which she released just before COVID hit, which of course no one knew was going to happen, and ended up totally stalling any promotion she hoped to do. I agreed to read it, and unfortunately, as often happens, took far longer than I probably should have to get around to it. But I really felt that instead of just talking about the book, I wanted to cover this case in full. Of course, I relied heavily on Debbie's book as a source, which is called My Beloved Country Made Me Cry. But the information I've used here is probably just a quarter of the incredible, heartbreaking and shocking information that Debbie has included in her book. So I strongly recommend you get it. It's available in ebook format on Amazon, and I'll link that in the show notes. And it's also available in many bookstores too. Debbie's journey after Mike's murder is pretty incredible. And I've had the honor of chatting with her about some of the projects she's doing now. I also figured out while reading the book that she has links to another woman whose own journey after losing a loved one to crime I admire greatly. And I'll get into that a bit later in the episode. So without further ado, let's get into episode 138, The Murder of Mike Thompson. The following episode may contain sensitive material including descriptions of violence, sexual assault or graphic descriptions of injuries to victims. If you feel you may be triggered by such material, please consider this before accessing our content. To access trauma counseling or services, please see the helpline information on our show notes. Although this episode is specifically about the murder of one man, Mike Thompson, the case itself involves a huge number of other victims of different crimes that the individuals involved in Mike's murder committed. Occasionally we hear about specific gangs or syndicates with specific modus operandis operating in certain areas. I will admit that groups like the one we're talking about today who commit violent home invasions do seem to be far more common in Gauteng and its immediate surrounds than in some other provinces. I think that has a lot to do with the high population density in the area and also the fact that the road network there often allows these people to be in areas where they'll do these home invasions and then very quickly flee into areas where they can hide out. Like serial killers, these gangs are often given names by either the media or the police to identify them and their crimes. Usually those names have something to do with their modus operandi or the area they operate in. The Rolex gang, for instance, were a group that operated in Johannesburg and got their name because of their many, because many of their victims were robbed of Rolex watches. The Santon Knife Gang is another that operated in Johannesburg and, as their name suggests, used knives in their robberies. Now, just to be clear, the word gang used in this context, while not entirely dissimilar to actual street or prison gangs, is actually just a way to describe criminals operating in a small group. I guess one of the biggest differences between these types of criminal groups and actual organized street gangs or prison gangs is the sense of loyalty to the group. In the types of groups we're talking about today, there are often core members, but that doesn't stop those members from carrying out crimes on their own, and there's not much of a code of conduct, as we see with proper gangs. Often these groups will fizzle out on their own after a while if they aren't caught, and they are far more likely to turn on one another than in street gangs. In 2007, the Razor Gang was terrorizing Johannesburg suburbs. The group operated with between five to seven members at a time, and their MO was to carry out extremely violent home invasions in which valuables, cash, and guns were stolen. The members would make entry into homes, usually while the occupants were still awake, tie them up, and often assault and terrify the homeowners 
into showing them where their valuables were. It didn't take long for their violence to escalate into more than beatings. It would later be revealed that their targets were also not always completely random. Very often, one of their members, who was a taxi driver during the day, would give domestic employees from the suburbs rides home and get into conversation with them. Sometimes these individuals would share more about their employers' homes and the contents than they perhaps intended to, and on occasion, that sharing of information was intentional, and they might be promised a cut of the proceeds of a possible home invasion. In the months before they darkened the door of the Thompson family, the Razor Gang was already on police's radar. They'd committed 16 crimes before the one we're going to focus on today, and it would sadly not be their last either. For the most part, the dockets associated with the gang were spread across three police stations, Bramley, Santon and Parkview. They would eventually all be consolidated under one station and one investigator, but not before an incredible amount of irreparable damage had been done to many lives. In her book, Debbie does a deep dive into the backgrounds of some of the members of the gang, as she would get to know them pretty well in the end. I'll get to some of that later in the episode, but you may be wondering about the gang's name, so at this point I'll say that the name comes from the nickname of one of the members, and the man who would play the most pivotal role in most of the crimes the gang was responsible for. Michael Thompson lived with his wife Lorna and their three children in Craighall Park. Mike worked in the IT industry, and Debbie says that his entire universe revolved around his wife, two daughters, Megs, 11, Annie Rose, 7, and his son, Nick, who was 9. Mike was close with his parents and older brother Alan, and well respected by his employer. The level of love and respect people had for the man would become extremely clear in the wake of his loss, and would echo out for a long time to come. Thursday the 27th of September 2007 was like any other weeknight in the Thompson home. It had been raining for most of the day, but it was also hot, so the family had the security gate on the sliding door in the main bedroom locked, but the sliding door itself was open to let some fresh air in. After dinner and baths, the five family members gathered in the main bedroom and all lay together on the bed watching television. Nine-year-old Nick was the first to head off to bed, and then the youngest, Annie Rose, retired too. As Megs was getting ready to go to bed, Mike noticed that the pool had been so well topped off by the day's rain that it was close to overflowing. If they had another downpour during the night, it would breach its limit, so Mike decided to backwash it quickly before bed. As he entered the backyard, he had no idea that there was a group of men huddled in the shadows. It would later emerge that the Razor gang had not actually targeted the Thompsons that night. It had all been a horrible coincidence. The men had been headed to the neighbor's home. They'd allegedly been provided with information by that family's domestic worker that there was a large amount of cash in the house. The gang had been unable to make entry to that property from the street, though, so instead they'd been making their way through Mike Thompson's yard to get there. At the very moment, he'd walked outside to backwash his pool. The moment they saw him and the gate standing open for the brief time it would have taken him to complete his task, the gang decided to change their target. In seconds, two of the men were upon Mike. He shouted at them as he saw them, and one fired a bullet into his chest which struck his lung. But Mike, immediately pumped with adrenaline and, and having had 20 years of martial arts training, wasn't immobilized by the bullet. Instead, he went on the attack, 
undoubtedly realizing that his family was just meters away. He watched as two of the men remained behind with him, and another two ran inside. One of the two men outside cocked his gun and seemed to be preparing to shoot. But his gun jammed, and as he desperately tried to correct it, Mike punched him, knocking him out cold. The other man then stepped forward, armed with a screwdriver. Mike wrestled him, and they both fell into the pool. Mike began to push the man's head under the water to get him to lose consciousness, but the man began to stab him with the screwdriver. He would stab Mike 14 times during the struggle. As they struggled, the man that Mike had knocked out came round and started shouting for one of the men who'd gone inside. The man appeared at the doorway, saw the struggle in the pool, raised his firearm and shot Mike once in the head. He died instantly. Inside the house, Lorna was horrified to see strange men standing in her bedroom. Not knowing the men's names at that point, Lorna would later identify them as the nice one, who was the man tasked with tying them up, as he'd been strangely kind and gentle with her and the children, despite the horrific nature of the situation. The wet one, as she'd seen the man who'd been wrestling with her husband in the swimming pool enter the house drenched, and the nasty one. The man who she would later discover was essentially the ringleader, and who seemed to take great pleasure in terrorizing and hurting them. As Lorna, Nick and Megs were tied up by the men, the youngest Thompson, Annie Rose, was still asleep in her bed. Lorna had asked if she could fetch the girls so that she didn't wake up and startle the men, but they refused, and thankfully Annie Rose would sleep through the entire incident. Lorna had no idea where Mike was at this point. She hadn't heard the gunshots. When she saw that one of the men was wet, she was concerned they might have knocked Mike unconscious and hoped they hadn't left him in the pool. She did ask the men where Mike was, and they told her not to worry, he was just sleeping. At that moment, though, she had to focus on keeping herself and her children safe. Over the next while, the men ransacked the family's home. They stole everything of value that they could carry, and would occasionally yank one of the family members off the ground and pull them around the house with a gun to their head, demanding to be shown where the valuables were. The man Lorna called the nasty one picked on nine-year-old Nick and dragged the terrified boy from room to room, screaming at him that if he didn't show him where the CCTV recording hub was, he was going to kill his whole family. The men had seen small speakers mounted on Nick's bedroom walls and mistaken them for CCTV cameras. They wanted to know where the recording hub was, the terrified child didn't even know what CCTV meant. Eventually, they seemed to accept that these were not cameras and decided they'd spent enough time in the house. They told Lorna that they were going to take her husband's car and they were going to leave one man behind at the house. If the car turned out to have a tracker in it, they said, or if she tried to call for help after they left, the remaining man would kill them all. After the men had left, Lorna and the children sat frozen, too scared to move in case the threat that one of the men had stayed behind was real. Eventually, though, Lorna realized she had to take action and get her children to safety. The three untied each other, and Lorna went to fetch the still-sleeping Annie Rose from her bed. She gathered the three terrified children and told them to stay absolutely quiet and close to her. The four crept through the house back into the main bedroom, where just an hour before they'd lay watching television, safely ensconced in their family womb. Lorna still had no idea where her husband was, and as she peered out into the garden, she hoped to see Mike lying unconscious on the paving around the pool, but he was nowhere to be seen. 
She quickly ushered the children out of the house and almost simultaneously spotted her husband at the bottom of the swimming pool. A cloud of blood surrounded him, and as the horrific knowledge that her husband was dead sunk in, Lorna had to immediately snap back into mom mode and ensure that her children didn't see their dad like that. She pushed them along further into the garden and stood between them and the pool, telling them not to look down and carry on moving. The family were eventually able to get their neighbours' attention and calls began to go out that would change so many lives. Debbie Thompson was getting ready for bed in her home in Hutzbreit, five hours' drive from Johannesburg, when her phone rang. In her book, she describes the confusion and shock that followed finding out that her brother had been murdered. She tries to wait out the night and travel in the morning, but eventually contacts a friend who was planning on travelling to Johannesburg for work and drives with her to arrive at her brother Alan's home, where the shocked family is gathering. I always think about how a place, in this case a home, can suddenly take on a completely different nature after something like this happens. A house you've gone to hundreds of times in your life for family gatherings, brides and Christmas parties, whose driveway, walls and the very sight of the structure itself you associate with family, friends, happiness and love, can quite suddenly, in the blink of an eye, really turn into the scene of something unthinkable. And that place becomes completely different. As Alan Thompson pulled up to his brother's house in Craig Hall Park, the dark street was already cloaked in flashing blue light. The home had been the place the Thompsons saw as their safety net, that their family members had associated with the deep bonds they had with one another, and it was suddenly the scene of a crime. Alan would later say that the picture he'd had in his head of what a crime scene being worked by police officers would look like was nothing like what he found when he entered his brother's property. He expected a controlled environment with cordoned off areas and evidence collection techs dressed in protective equipment, scouring the house for evidence. Instead, he found between 20 and 30 random people just trudging around the property, walking in and out of the house and touching items with their bare hands. Perhaps worst of all, his brother's body still lay at the bottom of the pool. The family waited for hours for forensics teams to arrive before Mike could eventually be retrieved from his watery grave. One positive aspect of that night was the presence of members of the volunteer victim support team from Parkview Police Station who had the forethought to ask officers to remove Mike's wedding ring and watch from his body and they gave it to the family. Debbie says that the volunteers were an incredible support to them that night, and their presence would spark in her an idea about how she could make Mike's death mean something to the world, but we'll talk more about that later in the episode. As Debbie arrived in Johannesburg, she received the first task of many to come, that crop up when a loved one becomes the victim of violent crime. Mike's car was recovered in Alexandra Township in the early hours of the next morning, and she went through to the police station to identify it. Again, the vehicle that Mike had purchased to transport his family, which until that point was synonymous with laughing children and the excitements of new destinations, was now sullied by the knowledge that Mike's murderers had been the last people in there. Debbie watched as the forensic techs took fingerprints from the inside of the vehicle. They discovered a few that they said were really good prints and should yield results, and keep this in mind because it'll become important later. 
in these very early hours, Mike's family were already starting to experience a taste of the frustration that would taint their quest for justice for almost a decade after Mike's murder. As news of Mike's death began to spread, visitors started pouring in to his brother's home where Lorna and the children were staying. Although this time would be a complete blur, several of the visitors would play a pivotal role in the events that would follow the tragedy. One of Mike's best friends visited and offered to arrange a private detective to start working the case immediately. This detective would become incredibly important in gathering valuable evidence and handing it over to the SAPS. In the days after the murder, the family already started discussing how they might like to honour Mike in a more permanent way. Mike's employer offered to open a trust, which they could use to raise funds to help play a real role in preventing crime and helping future victims. Both Alan and Debbie would stand by their initial commitment to honouring Mike's memory in the years to come and making a real difference. Debbie and Alan would also take on the task of identifying Mike's body at the mortuary. Debbie describes this experience as one of the worst of the entire ordeal. The staff did not seem to have any concept of how horrific the deed was for the family and there was no explanation or preparation for the grieving siblings before they were shown Mike's body. Another visitor to the home in those early days was a woman whose name I'm very familiar with, and was quite surprised to see her name pop up in Debbie's book. Frequent listeners of the podcast will recognize the name Vanessa Lynch as a woman who essentially took on South African policymakers to force the implementation of desperately needed DNA databases and collection strategies for crime scene techs in South Africa. Vanessa and her mom Sue understood the Thompson's pain all too well. I've interviewed Vanessa on the podcast before about her organization, DNA for Africa, and the work it and she has done to move DNA forward in South Africa, and she's even interviewed me on her podcast too. Vanessa's quest began after her father was murdered in a home invasion in 2005. His case was never solved, despite there being a ton of DNA evidence on the scene. But she visited the Thompsons that day in a personal capacity. She, Debbie and Mike went to school together, and had been friends since. It was simply horrible coincidence that Vanessa had experienced something so similar to what the Thompsons were going through. But that horrible coincidence would have amazing results for the entire country and countless victims of crime. Vanessa's little brainchild organization at the time, DNA for Africa, was one of the first beneficiaries of what became known as the Mike Thompson Change a Life Trust. Although all these incredible things were happening in the weeks and months after Mike's death, the family's aching loss was still incredibly evident. The children, nine-year-old Nick especially, struggled significantly. And what made things worse was that the men who killed their father were still out there, and they were still committing crimes. Five days after Mike Thompson was murdered, the Razor gang struck again. Before writing her book, Debbie received permission from the Patterson family, who were the next victims, to release the information I'm about to share with you. Alan and Bronwyn Patterson are parents to Jamie and Angus, who were 17 and 10 at the time. The Razor gang made their way into the Patterson home one night while the family was settling into bed. Both the children were already sleeping, but the gang tied up Alan and Bronwyn and woke the children up, ordering them into the lounge with their parents, where they were all forced to kneel in front of the men as the gang ransacked their home. 
the roles the men seemed to play, which came through so strongly in the Thompson home, also came through here. The nasty one was exceptionally vicious on this occasion, and so was at least one of his accomplices. The nice one continued to display a strange sense of care for his victims, binding them carefully and placing a blanket over them, and eventually even a pillow under Bronwyn's head as she lay on the floor. But the viciousness strongly overwhelmed any element of kindness displayed. Bronwyn asked up front that the men communicate only with her and not with her husband, because he was recovering from a stroke and struggled to find the right words sometimes. They did so, but this also meant that she became the gang's punching bag. Bronwyn was violently assaulted about the face and head and stabbed twice in the neck with a pair of scissors. The men had tossed her in a pile on top of her children and husband, and then the nasty one took his violence to a new level. Shouting that he was HIV positive, he grabbed 17-year-old Jamie and dragged her into a bathroom. Locking the door, he proceeded to rape the young girl. Alan was also beaten. Angus clearly remembered his mother being tossed on top of him after she'd been stabbed and her whispering to herself that she was dying as her blood dripped onto him. Then, the men fled. When they were able to raise the alarm, Bronwyn was rushed to the hospital and spent time in the ICU. She had massive bruising, a piece of her ear had been ripped off, she had broken ribs and had lost a significant amount of blood. She did recover physically. Jamie, too, was rushed to the hospital and a rape kit was taken which would yield DNA evidence. She was given antiretrovirals to try and prevent the rapist's HIV from developing in her body, and this caused her body to go into anaphylactic shock. But Jamie was not going to be held back by these vicious men. After a week in hospital, she spoke with the media about her ordeal. Then... She went back to school, sat for the matric exams she'd been studying for on the night of the attack, and passed with seven distinctions. The incredible bravery and strength of this young woman is unbelievable. The gang's next victims were not just one family, but rather three who all lived on the same premises. Debbie has changed the names of these victims because many of them fled the country after the crimes were committed against them and they did not take part in the eventual trials. The victims in this case, Pastor Tom Redman and his wife Jenny, lived on a property in Santon, on which there were two other cottages. Tom's parents lived in one cottage and they had a tenant in the other, a young student named Mbali. On the night of the attack, Mbali's friends, patients, Vusi and Tabo, were all at her home watching television. Systematically, the Razor gang moved from cottage to cottage, rounding up all the victims into one of the cottages and tying them up. By the time the gang left the property, Vusi had been brutally assaulted and was barely clinging to life. Jenny and Mbali were both raped by one of the perpetrators, and Patience was subjected to three rapes. In between each, she was severely assaulted as well. The magnitude of the totality of that horror is just too great to put into words. Thankfully, this would be the gang's last known crime as a group. By this time, all of the dockets associated with the Razor Gang had been put together and allocated to one investigator, Warrant Officer Bruce McIntosh, at the Santon Police Station. 
Debbie praises Macintosh highly in her book and shares some of his background in the SAPS and the struggles he faced with a job he loved so much, which would eventually lead to his resignation. But in 2008, his sole focus was catching the violent gang of home invaders who called themselves the Razor Gang. It was really a bit of a stroke of luck that would lead to the first arrest, but that is often how it goes. Police were called out to a home in Alexandra where a man had pointed a firearm at his girlfriend and a man he'd found her with. The young man was arrested and the gun was seized, and when the serial number was run, it came back to Michael Roy Thompson. Mike's gun had been stolen during the robbery in their home, and now, it seemed, perhaps police had found one of his murderers. The young man with the gun was more than a little horrified to hear he was being accused of murder. He explained that he hadn't had any intention of using the gun, and it didn't even belong to him. He'd found it under his uncle's mattress and taken it to show his girlfriend, but then he'd found her with another man. He was very happy to lead police back to his uncle, and police officially arrested the first member of the Razor Gang on that day, George Nyembe. In searching George's home, police found a huge number of stolen items they could tie back to the gang's crimes, and George was singing like a bird, and directed Macintosh to the homes of several other gang members. Sibusisu Mashinini managed to escape from police by running on the rooftops of surrounding homes and disappearing into Alexandra. He was arrested on the 1st of February 2008, though. Armando Makamo was arrested next, and then Bongani Masumpa and Mzilowo Tofile. By April 2008, there were just two gang members outstanding. The leader, Razor Zulu, the man whose nickname had named the gang, and Sabang Keza. McIntosh received a tip-off about Razor's whereabouts on the 28th of April 2008 and crept up on the man while he was drinking at a tavern. He was in handcuffs before he knew what was happening. The final member of the gang was killed in a shootout with police after he'd committed another robbery with a different group in four ways. And now, with all of the members of the gang in custody, we can piece together the evidence and understand exactly who these men were, because that would be incredibly important for Debbie too. Razor Raymond Zulu was the nasty one. Evidence would show although he would flip-flop on his own culpability, that he was responsible for the first shot on Mike, as well as the shot in the head that had killed him. He was also responsible for the rapes of Jamie, Mbali, and Patience. George Nyembe was the wet one, the man who'd struggled with Mike in the swimming pool and trudged back into Lorna's home, soaked to the bone after stabbing her husband 14 times with the screwdriver. He had also raped Jenny and Patience, and he'd stabbed Bronwyn in her neck and tore off a piece of her ear. Bongani Masumpa was the so-called nice one. He had shown strange care toward the victims of his vicious crimes. Mziloa Tofile was believed to be the getaway driver and the man who would secure the leads during his day job as a taxi driver. Evidence connected all of the other men to the crimes too. Identity parades would be held in which Lorna and Nick were able to identify some of the perpetrators in the first ID parade, which they would later say was handled extremely professionally and they were treated with the utmost respect. When they had to go back for a second one, though, the opposite was true, and the family was so deeply re-traumatized by how they were treated that they couldn't make any identifications. 
Debbie points out something in her book that I think is extremely important to mention here about ID parades. She says that she's come to learn that many police officers across the country are under the mistaken belief that for an ID parade to be valid, the victim needs to touch the person they're identifying on the shoulder. Now, obviously, this is incredibly traumatizing and pretty ludicrous. It's bad enough coming face to face with a person who committed a violent crime against you, but now you have to touch his shoulder and get close enough to do that? No, surely that can't be true. Well, no, it's not, as Debbie points out. She received confirmation from the NPA that this is absolutely not true. And if you ever find yourself in a situation where you're asked to do this, make sure you ask for the most senior officer in the building so that they can set the incorrect officer straight. The other families had equally poor experiences with ID parades linked to this case, and in fact, it seemed to be this that had pushed the last group of victims over the edge and into fleeing the country, because that was the last part of the process they dealt with before breaking contact with police and refusing any further interaction. At the risk of overstating this, I cannot imagine how a police officer could possibly expect Jamie, Mbali, Jenny and Patience to touch the men who had raped them on their shoulders. Can you even imagine the horror? In 2009, Reza, Zulu and Sibusiso Mashinini escaped from Alexandra Magistrate's Court while appearing in a pre-trial hearing. Razor was re-arrested in November 2009. He was fast asleep with a loaded weapon beside him, but Bruce McIntosh was thankfully faster than he was, and the cuffs were on his hands before he could reach for the weapon. Sibusisu Mashinini remained on the run for another two and a half months until he was shot in another robbery. McIntosh walked into his hospital room despite him having been booked in under a fake name, and the man's vital sign measurement machine went berserk at the sight of the police officer. Machinini continued to claim that it was a case of mistaken identity, though, until McIntosh asked the nurse to check the man's back for a Mickey Mouse tattoo. And indeed, there it was, and Machinini was back under arrest. All of the members of the Razor Gang were denied bail, except for Mziloa Tofile, who was believed not to have been physically at the robberies or murders, and had allegedly only driven the gang to each of the locations. If the Thompson and Patterson families thought that the Great Wheel of Justice was now finally turning and they could expect a quick resolution, they would be horribly mistaken. What happened over the next almost a decade would be unbelievable if it was scripted in a movie. But anyone who has ever dealt with the incredible level of low resources and inadequate systems in South Africa and many other similar countries will know it's all too real. The Thompsons and the Pattersons did not understand this at the time, but they were certainly going to find out. The Thompsons would have to fight for every piece of information they could get. Almost a year after the gang was arrested, they had to use personal connections to discover that Mike's case was not even on the court roll yet. His docket was lying on the floor of an unlocked room in the courthouse with hundreds of others. Around this time, Bronwyn Patterson was interviewed on the radio and the Thompsons connected with her. They banded together to try and fight the system to get something happening. They would eventually get Mike's case on the roll, and separately from the others, which was not what the prosecutor had originally wanted. They had wanted to try the gang for all their crimes at once, but this would mean that they would get one sentence for all of the cases, 
and the families didn't want that. Although they eventually won this battle too, it definitely wasn't the end. Debbie tried for years to get transcripts of the various court appearances the men had made without any luck. She just wanted to be able to understand what had been said in each one, but to this day, she's had no luck. The Patterson's case would see a courtroom first in 2010. The traumatized family was subjected to continuous postponements, and eventually on the day of the trial starting, the accused men were offloaded from a van in full view of the bench where the Pattersons had been told to wait. Razor and his crew made threatening gestures and jeered at the family. The trauma was only further intensified when each family member was forced to say out loud in court, with all the defendants listening, not only their current address, but also the make, model and registration of the vehicles they drove. If the Razor gang had wanted to take retribution, the system was giving them a very easy way to do so. Finally, their testimonies were over and they were allowed to leave. But the Pattersons were never informed of another court date. They eventually heard through a friend who'd heard on the radio that Razor Zulu was found guilty of rape and various other charges, and George Nyembe was found guilty of the attempted murder of Bronwyn. They were given 30 and 20 years respectively. The Thompsons expected their case to come next, but when they inquired, they once again discovered that Mike's case had been removed from the roll. According to the prosecutor, there was insufficient evidence. In speaking with the I.O., who was now in charge of the case, the family was horrified to discover that the man had no idea that there was in fact a mountain of evidence against the gang in connection with Mike's murder. His laptop had been found in their possession, they'd been linked to his car, they'd been linked to his weapon, and there were fingerprints in his vehicle. None of this was in the docket, which had been clearly tampered with at some point. Thankfully, the Thompson's PI was able to resupply some of the evidence to get the docket back up to date, but the biggest shock would come when, just by chance, they discovered that the docket didn't even have the correct injuries for Mike noted. The autopsy report said absolutely nothing of the 14 stab wounds that had been inflicted by George Nyembe. It noted only the two gunshot wounds. Eventually, the 14 stab wounds were just added in a note at the bottom of the report which just beggars belief. Finally, in 2015, eight years after Mike was murdered, his case was added back onto the roll, and four members of the gang were to stand trial for his murder. Bongani Masumpa, George Nyembe, Raymond Reza Zulu, and Mzilowo Tofile. These seemingly now standard postponements continued, and the children who needed to testify were forced to pull out of provincial sports teams and miss out on school events to attend trial dates, which were eventually just postponed again. Finally, even the judge in the case seemed to have had enough and said if there were any further postponements in the case, heads would roll. At the very next court date, the family were surprised to hear that George Nyembe and Bongani Masumpu had both pled guilty and turned state witness against the remaining two. George was given 15 years for housebreaking and 20 years for murder. Bongani was given 10 years for housebreaking only. Now, a new trial had to start for Zulu and Tofile. On the first day of the new trial, the family was subjected to the traumatic experience of having Razor Zulu led down to the bench where they were sitting outside the courtroom 
and in his leg shackles, they placed the man directly next to the victims. Debbie was enraged, and Razor quickly began smirking at the family and making threatening gestures toward them. Debbie was having none of it, and went and sat in the bench opposite Razor, although her own heart was racing and got his attention. She stared into his eyes for the rest of the time that they were out in the hallway. Any time he tried to turn his attention back to the children and Lorna, she shouted, Hey! and held him once again in her gaze. On that day, there was another postponement, and Debbie decided to wait outside the court for Razor to be taken out so that she could snap a picture of him so she had a more recent image as he'd changed so much since he was arrested. She waited and waited, and eventually went inside and asked where the prisoner was. The court clerk told her he'd asked to be kept in the holding cells for his own protection. Clearly, Debbie's fierce protection of her family had rattled the nasty one. When the trial finally resumed in July 2016, the family was in for another surprise. Razor Zulu had decided to plead guilty to Mike's murder. They immediately thought that he must be trying to get less time, but he actually hadn't. In his plea, he advised his own attorney to request the punishment he would have received, life in prison. The change around was unfathomable, but the Thompsons quickly agreed. Unfortunately, the charges against Tofile were dropped as there wasn't sufficient evidence to continue a trial against him, and the family agreed to this too. Before being led away, Reza Zulu asked for an opportunity to apologize to the family. He broke down into tears and told them that he was very sorry for what he did. Then, as though the last eight years had been nothing but a strange, horrific nightmare, Razor is led away for the last time, his leg shackles reverberating around the courtroom. But it wouldn't be the last time that Debbie Thompson would see Razor Zulu. In the years since her brother's murder, Debbie's life had changed completely, not only due to the deep grief and loss she'd experienced, but because she decided to use that grief to try and make a difference in Mike's name. They'd been so grateful for the victim support services they'd received that Debbie went on to start the first victim support service in Hutzbreit. Her original career in conservation has now taken a major shift, and although I can't share all of the details of what she does, as a lot of it is highly confidential, rest assured that Debbie Thompson is playing a pivotal role in fighting crime in South Africa in a volunteer capacity, and she is a sought-after resource and partner with law enforcement. Working with other victims and seeing so many other crimes and criminals got Debbie thinking. Why did the men who'd caused so much devastation in so many lives end up where they were? The process of trying to first find and then actually talk to these men was similar in frustration levels to the journey to their conviction. Before she actually achieved what she'd set out to, Debbie would be scammed by an unscrupulous person wasting many months of her time. Then, when she finally discovered where the men were, it took forever to actually figure out how to sit down with them, and even on the day she arrived, prison staff had no idea where Bongani Masumpa was at all, and although their system said that Razor Zulu was at a different prison, he actually was at the prison Debbie was at, and they eventually found him. After a brief conversation with George and Razor, she was able to arrange a proper VOD or victim-offender dialogue with the men. The two men's stories were very similar. Both had grown up in severe poverty with single mothers. 
Reza had seen his mother severely beaten and watched his father throw her and him and his siblings out on the street. He and his siblings had joined street gangs early, as had George. By the time George was 25, four of his six siblings were dead. When you read Debbie's book, you'll get some of the pretty amazing insight she's gained over the years into the difference between people who grow up in difficult circumstances and go on to commit crimes and those who don't. But Debbie realized quickly through talking to the men that only one of them seemed at least a little bit sincere about his remorse. George and Yembe seemed sincere enough, although he had very little insight into why he'd done the things he had, and he couldn't explain why he continued to do such things if he felt as bad about them as he claimed. But there was some imperceptible difference between George and Razor that made Debbie fear that Razor would likely do exactly the same things again if given half the chance. Razor cried and begged for forgiveness, but there was a depth missing from his apology. His behaviour had a dramatic flair to the point that Debbie felt like he was simply putting on a show. Psychopaths are really good at that. That's my view, by the way, not Debbie's. And even in their telling of their versions of what had happened that night, the men tried to minimise certain roles. When Sabang was shot by police, he became the gang's scapegoat, and suddenly everyone was claiming that it had been him and not Razor that had shot Mike. But Debbie knew that wasn't true. Although they'd never got a full trial with all the evidence presented, she'd gained enough experience in the ensuing years to be able to piece things together. The men claimed that the gunshots had only happened when they were in the pool, and it was, you know, kind of self-defense, according to them, because they had told Mike to just comply, and he had been trying to drown George. All of this was, to coin a phrase, bullshit. The angle of the first gunshot could not have happened while Mike was on his stomach in the pool. Both bullets he was shot with came from a 7.65mm gun. Tabang's gun, which had definitely jammed because an ejected bullet was found on the paving, was a 9mm. When Razor was arrested, he had a 7.65 in his possession. The ordeal that the Thompsons and every other victim of the Razor gang went through is just unspeakable. And I'm not even just talking about the crime. I'm talking about everything they went through after that. They literally had to fight tooth and nail for the justice they finally got. And what would have happened if they hadn't? What would have happened if Mike hadn't had family to fight for him? Or if the family simply didn't have it in them, after all the pain, to keep pushing? Would the Razor gang have just gone back out onto the street? Debbie acknowledges that there are people in the story who are impeccable examples of their profession. And there are people who are rather poor examples. And that's to be expected. But it is about more than the people who might or might not do their jobs, regardless of the condition of the system. It's about a system that is so broken in so many ways that it enables the people who don't want to do their jobs and disables those who do. Time has passed and improvements have been made, but Debbie's story is duplicated in my inbox almost every day. We have a shockingly low solve and conviction rate in this country on violent crimes, and the Thompson story is sadly not the first or the last. But it is important to hear.
I highly recommend you get a copy of Debbie Thompson's book, My Beloved Country Made Me Cry. I'll link it in the show notes, and if you struggle to find it, please do let me know. Debbie, you initially wanted a book review. I think this might be the longest book review in history, but here's the summary. Your book is one every South African needs to read. It is one that perfectly encapsulates an experience no one should ever have, but also goes so much deeper than a description of trauma. It brought me close to tears at times, and I've learned not to be a crier. You are an incredible writer, an amazing person, and the best damn sister anyone could ever ask for. And thank you for everything you continue to do for the country that has stolen so much from you. Mike Thompson does have a legacy. Thanks to people like Debbie, Alan, Lorna, his children, his parents, and Vanessa Lynch, incredible changes are being made daily which are helping to ensure that families have to deal with less and less of this going forward. And although that's amazing, and I'm so grateful for the work that all of these people are doing, I have absolutely no doubts that Debbie would rather have her brother back. Lorna would rather have her husband back than his wedding ring that she wears around her neck on a chain. Their children would rather have their dad. His parents would rather have their son. Reza Zulu claimed that he decided to plead guilty because he saw Nick, Mike's son, and how he had grown up since he'd last seen him and realized that he'd forced this child to grow up without a father, like he had, perhaps. And maybe that was part of it but I don't think that was all of it. Because that day, he treated the Thompsons terribly, jeering and smirking at them, threatening them. But I think there was one thing that might have hit home with him that day, and that was what he saw in Debbie Thompson's eyes. I don't think there's any doubt that Reza Zulu was the most dangerous of this group. I personally don't think his tears were ever for his victims. They were for himself. And I could be totally off course here, but I think that when Debbie sat down in front of him that day and stared him down, despite his best attempts to intimidate her and her family, he saw a strength in her that he would never have. He saw what strength looked like when it was born of love and not hate. Debbie wasn't afraid of him, at least not in the way he wanted her to be. And that was really all Razor Zulu ever had, fear. It was the mother's milk he was raised on. It was the sustenance he was fed. And then, because he had absolutely no other tools in his toolkit, it became his weapon too. And in this woman's eyes, the woman from which he'd stolen an entire life that consisted of her previous normal, in her eyes, he saw something he had no defense against. He'd never had anyone in his life who would stare down a monster for him. But Lorna, the kids, and Mike did. Maybe if Razor had had someone to stare down the dragons for him, he would have learned that love is far more powerful than hate. And maybe he wouldn't. Maybe he would always have been an angry, violent person. Who knows? But Mike had Debbie and many others. And they stared down the monsters together until the monsters gave in. 
But even in that act of selfless love, their hearts remained forever scarred. Mike Thompson, rest gently. If you'd like to hear more victim-focused true crime content, please subscribe to True Crime South Africa on Spotify or the platform you're using to listen right now. If you're looking for something still related to real-life stories, but often with a more positive slant, you can check out my new podcast series, I Live Through This. You can follow both podcasts on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. I'll be back next week with another episode. Until then, thank you for your support, and I'll chat to you soon. A healthier, happier, more productive life starts with good sleep. Make sure you invest in the right bed. Dial-A-Bed stocks the best bed brands at the best prices. Shop at 76 stores nationwide or online.